The comments and views expressed on The Moore Show are those of the people that make them and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kevin Moore, The Moore Show, or this radio station and its affiliates or sponsors. Hello and welcome to another edition of The More Show, which is sponsored by the UFO Matrix magazine. On today's show, I'm about to be joined with my guest, Lauren Coleman. Now, Lauren is one of the world's leading cryptozoologists. He is an honorary member of the British Columbia Scientific Cryptozoology Club. He started his fieldwork and investigations in the 1960s after traveling and trekking extensively in pursuit of cryptozoology mysteries and began writing to share his experiences. Lauren has been investigating cryptozoology evidence and folklore since the abominable snowman caught his interest over four decades ago, leading him to research mystery Black Panther sightings and the reports of napes, North American apes, in the American Midwest. He has traveled to every state in the USA, throughout Canada, Mexico, Scotland and the Virgin Islands, interviewing witnesses of lake monsters, Bigfoots, giant snakes, Mothman sightings, Thunderbirds and more. Lauren Coleman, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. It's great. It's great being here. Even though it's cold outside, it's warm inside. Now, Lauren, where in the United States are you based? I'm based in Portland, Maine, which is uh, the furthest north state other than Alaska. So, for instance, today uh, it's, uh, you know, four degrees outside. Okay. Now, uh, you specialize in cryptozoology. Now, just for our guests out there, what, what is cryptozoology? Yes, I've been involved in cryptozoology since 1960, and cryptozoology, of course, is the study of unknown or hidden or yet-to-be-discovered animals. Uh, A lot of people make the mistake thinking that these creatures are mythical. They're actually folkloric and legendary. They're based upon reality, whereas mythical creatures are fantasy, like, uh, for instance, unicorns, whereas I pursue uh, the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot or or Yeti, which are really based upon native or local legends. Okay, well, let's just talk about some of these local legends. Uh, Let's talk about Bigfoot. Have you uh, ever seen a Bigfoot? No, no, I have not seen a Bigfoot. I've been to every state in the United States except for Alaska, interviewing eyewitnesses. Uh, I found some tracks in different Midwestern sites. I've... uh, I've seen how they disturb areas. I've seen where they've been, uh, you know, and I've uh, gone on reconstructions or recreations of uh, eyewitness accounts. But uh, Bigfoot, in in essence, uh, you know, worldwide there are hairy creatures, hairy upright creatures that are seen. And and most people are uh, from the 1920s through the 1960s. There was a lot of media attention to the abominable snowman of the Himalayas, and, uh, you know, the Daily Mail did their expedition in 1954, and uh, other, the Hillary, Sir Edmund Hillary, did his expedition in 1960, and uh, the abominable snowman of the Himalayas of Nepal and Bhutan and Tibet really uh, is much more of a rock ape type of creature. It, it goes down on all fours. It has more of an orangutan sort of uh, sense to it. Whereas the Bigfoot, uh, and before there was the uh, use of the word Bigfoot in 1958, there was um, the they were called Sasquatch up in Canada. 
And these are much more upright. The footprint of the Bigfoot Sasquatch looks like a human footprint, except about 16 to 18 inches long. And so they're six feet to eight feet tall uh, and uh, totally uh, much more bipedal. There are not that many reports of them going down on all fours. And they seem in many ways to be like a human-like creature, except they're covered with hair and, and they don't have culture, they don't have speech. And uh, and so that's why we still figure that they're probably part of the more ape-like creatures versus human-like creatures. Okay, well, if Bigfoot does exist, then where did he come from? Well, the, the theory is that if you look at the, the fossil record, there are ape-like creatures, Australopithecine, Paranthropus, that really existed in Africa, came out of Africa, went across Asia. Some of the reports of uh, both the fossil candidates, like Megaanthropus in Java and in Indonesia, where it's called the giant man of, of Java, and uh, really some of the larger specimens of Homo erectus seem to uh, show the footprints through Asia, and then you have, of course, still today there the in China the Yaren, which is not like a Yeti, but is much more like the Bigfoot, come across the Bering Strait through through the coastal areas of Alaska down through Canada, and then into the Pacific Northwest. So the main habitats uh, and the main reports that we have of of uh, Bigfoot type creatures are in China with the Yaren through the through Alaska and British Columbia down into northern California of a Bigfoot Sasquatch. And then if you also look in the Andes, you have a thing down there called the the UCI, which is a U-C-U. And uh, that very much reflects a Bigfoot-type creature, upright, uh, a footprint that looks like a human, and not ape-like, more human-like, but hairy. So you have this uh, continuous band through the mountainous areas of the the Pacific Rim of these Bigfoot-type creatures, and and really coming from the Pleistocene, coming from 40,000, you know, 1 million to 40,000 years ago into modern history. And um, is Bigfoot just indigenous to uh, America? Well, I I think that uh, what the confusion is is, of course, regional names, and that's why you have something that's very similar to it in China and in the Andes, but um, through from Canada and Alaska and, and the United States, you do have the Bigfoot Sasquatch kind of creatures. But uh, I think what we're saying is that there are some similar ones in Asia and South America. It's just that uh, the confusion is when people then try to add every hairy creature that's seen in the Mideast, Persia, or Africa, or even the Himalayas, those are really something that's very different. I mean, they the little creatures that are hairy that we have reports from Africa seem to be much more like Australopithecine and, and really not at all like Bigfoot. And, of course, they have different regional names, but Bigfoot's very much different, and I think that uh, the reason that we know so much about them is because the Native Canadians, the Native Americans, the Eskimos, the Inuits have had tales about these for 300 to 500 years, and and so when the you know Europeans, the European Americans, started uh, colonizing some of these areas, the native peoples were already very familiar with them, and then uh, loaned some of the stories. So it was it was only in 1958 when a newspaper man 
in California came up with the word Bigfoot, that we really have the modern era of Bigfoot. But uh, they were here before then, of course. And uh, what do you think about Bigfoot's representation in the movies? For example, you know, Bigfoot and the Hendersons. I mean, is that a fair representation? I think, yeah, you know, and I have done, uh, you know, quite a bit about this. I taught a, a documentary film course for 13 years at the university, and I, I would show the the progression of Bigfoot through the movies because what you have in terms of uh, the early depictions of Bigfoot in uh, some of the films around, you know, from 1960s, 1970s, were very, very closely matching what people were seeing in the field. Uh, the Patterson-Gimlin film, which is the footage of the Bigfoot-type creature Bluff Creek, that really uh, supposedly depicts a real Bigfoot. And so most of the filmmakers uh, really were showing a creature that was completely covered with hair, very short hair, you know, not much more than three or four inches long, and uh, and having the same color all over. But then what, of course, happened was Hollywood discovered Bigfoot. And so in 1987, when you had Harry and the Henderson, very much a comedy film, it, it showed a Bigfoot that was much bigger than six and a half feet tall, and it also showed a Bigfoot with longer head hair, with a, a a kind of a blonde beard that made it much, with a, a blank face. That then has come into the, through the popular culture, some of the artists now depict Bigfoot looking more like a, a man with a beard, and that really doesn't match up with what people are still seeing in the field, which matches more what was seen by Patterson's film with the, the overall uh, same color in the the brownish fur and not having the beard and different things like that. That so you still you you have this great gap between what Hollywood and popular culture is showing for Bigfoot versus what people are really still seeing. Sure, and uh, the 1967 Patterson uh, video that's available for people to watch on YouTube and there's a link on the site for it as well. Just tell me about the controversy that surrounds that video, and also, you know, can they recreate that kind of video today? Well, actually, they cannot, and which is uh, one of the, the saving graces of why many of us really still have some trust in that film. Here you have a situation where uh, two individuals, Roger, Roger Patterson and, and Bob Gimlin, they were very conscious of how popular Bigfoot was becoming, so they wanted to make a film about the hunt for Bigfoot. So they rented a camera. They went to this northern area of California around Bluff Creek where the first footprints had been found in 1958. And there had actually been some recent sightings there. So they were rounding the bend of, uh, of a creek bed. And all of a sudden, one of the horses riled up and Roger Patterson got uh, from his horse he quickly grabbed his camera because he saw in front of him was this Bigfoot slowly walking away, grabbed the camera, took the picture of the Bigfoot, uh, then got it back and, you know, got it developed and then showed it to different scientists at British Columbia. Now, what happened between 1997 and the year 2000, three different uh Really, they were producers from Hollywood, producers from Fox TV, and some skeptics came out with three different theories saying that they knew who was in the Bigfoot suit. Uh, you know, one guy was named uh, Romney, another guy was named Hieronymus. And, and what was so laughable, uh, 
when I started interviewing all of these skeptics and debunkers is they all had their own personal theory, and yet none of them could recreate the film. Uh, you know, the BBC, National Geographic came in with documentary film teams. Fox News came in. None of them could recreate the Patterson film that was actually using 1967 technology. Uh, and they were using technology that had progressed 30 years, and they still, uh, the film has not been able to be faked again. So the the people that they're showing that are in the film are, you know, 50-year-old men that have a, a pot belly and, and look like the Bigfoot. But one of the amazing thing, things, of course, about the Patterson film is that uh, this is a, a female in which you can definitely see uh, breasts upon the Bigfoot, which knowing all of the gorilla suits and all of the Hollywood fakery that was made back then, none of them had female uh, Bigfoot or gorilla suits. They were all males. That was the general model for for any kind of costume. So uh, for people to think that uh, that that faking could have happened so easily, it's it's just a it's, it's kind of undeniable that uh, there's something much more extraordinary going on. Okay, so we do have female and male Bigfoots. This whole idea that there's one Bigfoot or one Nessie or one abominable snowman, that's that's very much not the way cryptozoologists think. There's breeding populations of these animals. They just haven't been discovered, and yet everybody often talks about the Bigfoot or the abominable snowman. But uh, obviously family groups have been seen, uh, uh, you know, a male, a female, uh, the whole the whole picture there. So, I mean, how many Bigfoots are out there, would you say? Dr. Grover Krantz in uh, Washington State, when he was estimating the number of Bigfoot that would be uh, needed out there, he felt that the reports were uh, showing that there were between 2,000 and 4,000 Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest. And um, it's also been written that for every one Bigfoot seen, uh, there's probably 10 other reports where we're not hearing about them. The other thing that we, we think that there's probably one Bigfoot for every uh, 10,000 bears that are out there. The population of Bigfoot is very small. And we, we know right now, for instance, uh, the, the number of uh, mountain gorilla in eastern Africa to just maintain that breeding population there is only about 350 to 500 mountain gorilla. So we know that some of these, uh, these populations can dip to very, very low numbers. I mean, how do you argue, Lauren, that these mysterious creatures aren't just part of our imagination. I mean, where's the science stance on this? Well, I would never argue that they're part of our imagination. That's what the skeptics would say. I would say, uh, you know, as opposed to that, that what we know, uh, I mean, I've gone around all of North America, and one of the questions I always ask uh, wildlife biologists is, how many times have you found a dead bear or a dead mountain lion in the woods? And the answer always is no. They never find those kinds of animals. So one of the skeptical questions that I'm always asked is why don't we find the body of a Bigfoot? Well, first of all, their their numbers are very low. They have human-like characteristics, so they may have, you know, cooperation in which the body is hid. Large predator animals, large omnivores, hide their bodies when they die anyway. So I'm not surprised. Uh, you know, I don't need to have some kind of imaginary uh, you know, 
escape clause like, oh, the Bigfoot are disappearing into UFOs or they're eating their dead or, or some of the answers that I find uh, completely ridiculous. You know, all we have to do is look at the modern world and a bear dying in the woods disappears within two days. Crows and vultures and then rodents uh, uh, eat all of the the creatures and then, you know, maggots and everything else, and then porcupines come along to eat the larger bones. So the natural environment takes care of its own as far as hiding hiding and destroying and recycling bodies. So uh, I'm not at all surprised we haven't found Bigfoot. And the other thing is if we look only have to look back 100 years, there were reports of a Bigfoot-like creature in Africa, and we today know that as the mountain gorilla. Uh, the the fantastic reports that were coming out of Africa yeah. was of this Bigfoot-type creature that went around and squeezed to death Native women, and then of course uh, we now know that the the big you know the Bigfoot over there, which is the mountain gorilla, is a very peaceful creature. It's just that it took over uh, 60 years for them to uh, kill the first one and and prove that they existed. So, Lauren, what is the most compelling story that you've had to research over Bigfoot? Well, I think that if you look at Bigfoot, you have to take the real uh, overall body of the evidence, and and there is no more compelling uh, incident than the Patterson-Gimlin film, because here you have uh, an area that there's folklore, so you have Indian legends, you have uh, uh, eyewitness sighting, you have an animal reaction, you have the eyewitnesses saying that they smelled the creature, Uh, you have the creature on film, and then the creature left footprints, so you have a trackway of 10 rather intriguing footprints that show that the foot actually moved and was not a fake, you know, a cutout of a piece of wood that somebody had pressed. Uh, there's All the 10 footprints are all different, so the, the foot, foot was a, a mobile, viable foot. So I, I really think the whole interaction and overlap and kind of uh, conjunction of the Patterson-Gimlin film. All of the things that went into that is by far the best piece of, uh, of evidence that we have that there's uh, that we should really keep uh, researching and pursuing the Bigfoot uh, creatures because uh, I just I just don't see them as a hoax. I, you know, the rumors that uh, John Chambers had made the suits from uh, the Planet of the Apes just... Uh, was one of the early debunkings, and we know that John Chambers said that he left that rumor out there because he thought it helped his reputation. But all of the suits that were made for uh, Planet of the Apes was from only the chest up, so they don't even match. And so those kinds of early debunkings, uh, the recent ones in in the 90s, just just hold no water. And and the Patterson film uh, shows muscle movement under the hair. It shows herniations in the in the skin, uh, fur of this creature. It shows the glinting of the eyes. It shows, uh, you know, mammillary glands that just you don't find on fake costumes. So overall, I'd say the best case is the Patterson-Gimlin film. And uh, is there any evidence out there of uh, footprints or hair? Oh, oh, sure. There's fecal material. There's uh, there's thousands of, uh, of trackways that have been found. Uh, one incident in Washington State, they found over a thousand footprints. Uh, you've got hair samples that that uh, match nothing right now, and that actually is is very good because uh, until we have a type specimen of the Sasquatch Bigfoot, 
all of these hair samples that keep coming back near human but not human, uh, not gorilla, not not Homo sapiens, all really uh, are exactly what we would expect because until you find the the DNA and the the right hair from uh, a Bigfoot that's uh, you know been captured or uh, killed, uh, all of the in reactions and tests are going to come back inconclusive. And uh, has anybody ever tried to communicate with these creatures telepathically? Well, I, I think you're always going to get uh, fantasies of psychic Bigfoot and, and different things like that. And, of course, uh, all you have to do is talk to anyone that uh, tends to uh, believe in, in telepathy and they feel that they're picking up thoughts of dogs, let alone Bigfoot. And so I'm finding that that is is just a, a whole different subject that's really not at all connected to zoology. And uh, is there any museums which we can go and see the Bigfoot at at all? Well, there's all kinds of different museums around the country, uh, especially with regard to Bigfoot. You have up at uh, the University of British Columbia, they've had uh, different rotating exhibits of Bigfoot uh, near um, south of San Francisco and uh, you know the Monterey area. There's been a a Bigfoot museum there, the Bigfoot Discovery Museum, Portland, Maine, my museum, which is the International Cryptozoology Museum, has, uh, you know, 200 casts, uh, eight-foot-tall Bigfoot model, and, and lots of different exhibits connected to Bigfoot. So uh, you, you go around, they're, they're really, you know, some of them are more tourist attractions. Some of the, the there's a, probably two or three really good museums around the country where you can you can examine serious uh, exhibits. Okay, Lauren, we're just moving on subjects now. Let's now talk about the uh, Mothman. So what got you interested in the Mothman? Well, of course, uh, since I've been interested in cryptozoology uh, since 1960, one of the major incidents that occurred was in 1966 and 67. Out of West Virginia, we had all of these reports of giant bird-like creatures, which locally were called Mothman. So uh, I, I was involved in investigating the cases in the 60s. And then what occurred, I was writing a book uh, in the year 2000. Uh, I began writing a, a book about Mothman. I had done different chapters and different articles down through the years, and I thought um, with the turn of the century that I'd put together a whole book on the Mothman and look at it. And then what occurred was uh, Sony Screen Gems called me up um, early in the year 2000. They said, we understand that you might be working on a book on Mothman. Do you think you could speed it up because we're going to make a movie about it? And so I said, sure. You know, I was, uh, we're trying to get it published this year. So uh, the publisher and I rushed out uh, a, a book that was published at the same time when the Mothman Prophecies came out uh, in January of 2002. This new movie came out starring Richard Gere, and it was very much based upon my friend John Keel's book, which he'd written in 1975, uh, looking at how the Mothman, uh, a creature that was about six feet tall, had uh, large glowing red eyes and, and large bat-like wings or uh, bird-like wings, had been reported in the Point Pleasant, West Virginia year. And uh, the whole idea of uh, the, the title of the book, The Mothman Prophecies, really referred to uh, 
what many people uh, at the time thought was the the sightings of Mothman being a banshee-like occurrence because at the end of the 13 months of the sightings, the Point Pleasant Silver Bridge collapsed and 46 people were killed. So uh, the whole, uh, you know, kind of European and English legends of the banshee really got transferred over to America with the Mothman because people felt that that was some kind of precursor for disaster, and the movie really very much picked up on that. And so, um, my book coming out, and I really served and helped uh, help the movie get publicity by doing, uh, uh, you know, some, something in the range of 400 radio interviews around the world uh, to help them uh, promote the movie. And then I could uh, talk about my book, which was called Mothman and Other Curious Counters. So, with the John Keel book, was the Mothman movie aligned with John Keel's book? Uh, was the movie sort of Hollywood vamped up? Well, well Kevin, I, I believe I'd have to say all of the above, because uh, what occurred with John Keel's book, of course, was they, they took the premise of the Mothman, they took the, the basic stories of the sightings and John going down there and investigating, and the bridge collapsing, but what they did, of, of course, is they, they Hollywoodized it, because... They brought it up to contemporary time. Uh, they they really, they much more linked. Um, there was a, a character that was reported uh, around the same time, but not at the same time, called Indira Cold, which was a, a entity, alien-like thing that was seen in, uh, not near there, but, uh, you know, in West Virginia. And the movie really meshed that into... Uh, the voice of Indira Cold and the sightings of Indira Cold being the personification of Mothman as a as a entity, and uh, that never happened that way. Uh, and a lot of the things that happened in the movie only happened in the mind of some people. They they did other things like there were 46 people killed uh, when the bridge collapsed in 1967, and they act like the bridge happened more recently. Uh, and they only said 36 people died from the collapse of the bridge. So, so the the movie uh, very much, uh, and I, I I was involved with the studio on some of this. Uh, actually, the Mark Pellington, who was the director, because he was uh, quite upset to see that the Men in Black movie had come out only a couple years before that, uh, took all of the UFOs and Men in Black references in the Mothman story that Keel had in his book, he took him out of the movie and really made it just about uh, a much more a psychological thriller. So there was Men in Black visits to Point Pleasant. Is that what we're saying? Uh, well, uh, that's what Keel thought. I mean, I, I think what, what we found happening is, is Keel very much uh, never saw himself as a ufologist. In my interviews with him for the book, he... He very much said he was a demonologist. So, if anything, if there was, uh, if there were psychics involved, if there were UFOs involved, if there were men in black involved, even though they had absolutely no connection to Mothman, because they were happening near Point Pleasant, uh, even if it was five months later, Keel put them in the book as all kind of, and then he he put a mixer on. He he really stirred it into a vortex storytelling, which he made them all overlap, even though they weren't overlapping stories. So are we saying that there was an entity appearing, 
when the Mothman uh, was around in Point Pleasant. No, there wasn't, and that's that. It was in the movie, but it wasn't in the reality. There was uh, actually, and what it turns out, a lot of the UFO people quite clearly know that uh, this Warren Denenberg, who reported the Indira cold, he would make up stories, and there probably was absolutely no foundation to some of those sightings and some of those uh, alien contacts. It was really by a man who was trying to uh, con people into giving him money for some of his UFO contactee stories. That's one of the unfortunate things about the Mothman story is that it really contains many elements that are fakery. So where did the name Mothman come from? The Mothman name came from a copy editor on an Ohio newspaper. He uh, was a fan of the Batman series on TV, and he decided uh, he didn't like... Because what people were saying they were seeing was a giant bird and a large bird. He didn't like that, so he wanted to make a headline that had much more appeal to him, so he came up with the Mothman name. A Mothman was not called a Mothman by the eyewitnesses, and uh, in the movie, this whole notion that the they look like a moth or that they had wings like a moth is just totally plat- patently untrue, and uh, and that's why I, in a lot of the writings I've done, and a lot of other cryptozoologists have pointed out that the Mothman stories really have much more in common with the giant Thunderbird stories of the Native Americans. Mothman is a local regional name, but if you look at the old stories from that area, here we have Appalachia, and in that area of Appalachia you had over a 100 years of reports of giant birds, and it's just in 67, 60. Uh, 66, you have the Mothman name being uh, tied to these these uh, incidental reports. I mean, there was a, certainly a concentration. Over 100 witnesses saw this creature, so we know that it was there. We know that it was real. Uh, we just don't, uh, of course, know exactly what it was. And uh, this creature was around Point Pleasant between 66 and 67? Yes, yes. Although, uh, as, I, as I just pointed out, over 100 years ago, a giant owl-like creature, a bird-like creature, chased people in their uh, horse, horse and carriages. And then, uh, you know, 50 years after that, there were reports of giant birds chasing people in their jalopies, in their old cars. You know, these, these waves of different giant bird reports had been in the Point Pleasant years, uh, area for over 100 years. Now, people have begun to speculate that uh, the Mothman had direct knowledge that the um, bridge in Point Pleasant was going to collapse on December the 15th, 1967, and uh, that direct interaction had occurred between the citizens of Point Pleasant and the Mothman. Uh, was this the case? Uh, no direct interaction. Different people would report that they would have dreams of, uh, in which they would see Christmas packages floating in the river, and that was a prominent uh, dream that uh, Mary Hyde, who was uh, one of the local editors and newspaper women and a good friend of John Keel, she would have that dream, and as it turns out, of course, uh, because there were so many cars uh, stuck on the bridge and then so many cars went into the water and it was Christmas time, uh, there were no doubt, uh, you know, people did say that they saw packages in the river, Christmas packages already, uh, you know, uh, 
wrapped up. So, so those dreams did come true as far as interactions between the the beast itself, the Mothman creature, uh, other than at flying and chasing people or scaring the the bejeevers out of individuals. The real connection to it being a banshee and a, a polka, you know, as you have over in England, uh, the legends of uh, black dogs and and uh, you know a banshee type creatures coming before the death of people or or disasters. That really was a thought that was given to the the stories after the ha- fact, after they happened. Then people started making con- the connection. Now, after the Mothman movie was released in 2002, um, there were some unexplained deaths that, that occurred uh, during filming and obviously after filming. What, what can you tell us about this? Well, what, uh, what I started noticing uh, after the movie was released, uh, that, that I started picking up on relatives of different individuals were dying. Uh, for instance, the week that the movie opened, in um, Mason County, which is where Point Pleasant is, they had the most traffic accident fatalities in the history of that area. Uh, something like 21 different people uh, died on the rural roads down there. Uh, the city of Point Pleasant lost the power to the city. Uh, you had uh, two different eyewitnesses that are mentioned in the movie. You know that their you know their characters are based upon them that they actually had brothers and sisters die. And so I started uh, doing what I, I, putting together what I called the, the Mothman Curse Death List. And uh, within quite uh, easily, I was able to put together 84 different names of people. Uh, for instance, the director's wife, who was only 42 years old, died mysteriously. Uh, the the special effects director died, the executive producer of the movie died, uh, and so besides uh, the individuals that are are closely connected to eyewitnesses of the Mothman, you started uh, noticing, uh, and I I certainly started noticing that different individuals with uh, the, connected to the cinema part of the Mothman were also dying in in great numbers and. And um, I mean, I, I really tracked it all the way up until Alan Bates, who was in the movie, uh, died too. And I mean, he was an older man, and that was not unexpected. But there were some people that were very young. Uh, one of the, the my book cover was uh, put together by an uh, an artist uh, in Arkansas, and his son committed suicide. So it just it became very uh, uh, spooky the sort of the connections to the the Mothman curse. Did the uh, Mothman prophesize the collapse of the bridge? I mean, did he ever talk to anyone? Yeah, there was no uh, the the Mothman never talked to anybody. Never left messages. Uh, the Mothman was just a creature that was seen, and it was really a reconstruction of the events by. And, and, and if even he did not come up with the title, The Mothman Prophecy, that was the publisher that came up with that. So the whole notion that there was this banshee effect or that there was a prophecy really was something that people, I mean, the Mothman incidents happened in 67, uh, you know, 66, 67, the collapse of the bridge in 7. Uh, Keel wrote different articles in UFO magazines and in his book, uh, Creatures, uh, 
uh, Strange Creatures from Time and Space. That came out in 78, uh, uh, you know, uh, and in 75 was his Mothman Prophecies book. So you you don't really have a good connection here with with anything being presented beforehand showing that people were saying, oh, something bad is going to happen, and then it happening with the bridge. That is just something with the dreams that people felt. They almost felt a foreboding, but they didn't have any connection to to the Mothman. They just felt that, uh, you know, the whole Mothman and, and what happening was happening up and down the Ohio Valley concurrently but not connected to it was the UFO sightings. Uh, for instance, Mothman would be seen in April, and then you wouldn't have UFO sightings until November. And uh, so that, that was happening over and over again, but there wasn't even a connection for people between the Mothman and the UFO and the bridge collapse until, you know, five, six, seven years later. Okay, so there was UFO sightings around Point Pleasant. Oh, definitely. And Keel actually, Keel, what he had been, why he showed up in Point Pleasant he was investigating reports of uh, of winged cats. You know, sometimes there are these strange uh, cats, domestic cats, or I guess you call them Mahdi's over there or something. Uh, they have wings on them, uh, you know, some kind of birth defect. So Keel had been in the area investigating whether there were some strange births of some domestic cats uh, that had wings on them. And then because he had been a writer of UFO stories, you know, nonfiction uh, newspaper reports of UFOs, he also started noticing there were UFO reports, and then he found out about the the large bird, the big bird reports, had been calling his friend Ivan Sanderson in uh, New York and saying, have you heard about any large bird reports in the Point Pleasant area? And then that's when the uh, the editor, the you know, the copy editor over in Ohio came up with this name, Mothman, and then Keel uh, started writing articles about Mothman and the UFOs and, in that area. Okay, so once the bridge had collapsed, I mean, was the Mothman ever sighted in the same vicinity again? Well, he had uh, the Mothman-type reports, of course, covered those uh, 13 months, and people had seen them throughout those 13 months. And then what happened, I mean, I, I've been to Point Pleasant a, a couple times since then investigating, and, and people quite, you know, in a scared sort of fashion and confidentially said to me, you know, none of the newspapers around here are reporting it, but we're still seeing Mothman after the bridge collapsed. You know, that's just uh, foolishness to think that uh, the Mothman went away. The Mothmen were still around here. There were Bigfoot that were still around here. There were cattle mutilations. Uh, the whole area was filled. It was almost, I mean, and that's why you get some of the conspiracy theories in which people were saying that it was a CIA experiment, that uh, there, somebody had put LSD into the drinking water and that the whole, all the residents in the area were just having massive hallucinations of all kinds of things. Because indeed, uh, Keel's a very good investigator. He went in there, and, and people would open up to him. And so what became quite obvious is that all kinds of different anomalous and paranormal phenomena was being seen in that area. And I have had the, the same experience because um, my interviewing style is very non-confrontive, and people 
end up trusting some of us investigators, and they tell us quite clearly that there's all kinds of strange things that are going on in that area. It's a very bizarre uh, part of uh, West Virginia. You know, you get all kinds of different strange sightings from there. Now, John Keel, the original researcher, are you still in contact with him, Lauren? Yes, although, uh, you know, he's he's gone off of email for a couple years, but I, I once in a while write him letters or, uh, you know, have phone conversations. But he, like I mentioned earlier, his health is declining, so he's just not keeping in, he's keeping in touch with the one or two people that help him out locally, and then I, I hear about him through those folks uh, because he really doesn't, doesn't like to be bothered with, with uh, you know, even researchers, let alone fans these days. But then once uh, out of the blue moon, he'll show up for the, uh, see, after the movie came out, the city of Point Pleasant decided that they could make money, and, and they have now an annual uh, Mothman Festival. And I think that's really good because that's a really economically depressed area. So I suggested to them that they they get a museum, they get a festival together, and they really did that, sort of like what Roswell does now. Keel once in a while shows up uh, to give a talk. And so over the last uh, few years, Keel has actually gone down to Point Pleasant and uh, appeared to talk. Because as I write up in my book, what's really strange is that... uh, the Science Fiction Channel was doing a documentary about the movie, and they were getting ready to film uh, John Keel for, you know, in 2001, they were going to fly him down to Point Pleasant to do an interview. And unfortunately, the day that they'd picked to fly John Keel down to Point Pleasant was 9-11. So, yeah, so that was the day that it hit Twin Tower, the Twin Towers in New York City, and so... Keel never made that flight, and in fact, he feels very thankful that he didn't, didn't because he doesn't know what would happen if, to him, you know, on 9/11. So anyway, eventually, what happened with Science Fiction Channel? Um, I flew into New York City in October uh, after 9/11, and John Keel and I uh, appeared in a documentary about the Mothman Prophecies movie. And uh, has anybody ever described what the face of the Mothman looks like? No, what what really would take people's uh, breath away and get their attention, of course, was all they really could see was these two quite uh, glowing reflective. And, and never was, uh, you know, the red never came from the creatures themselves in the eyes. It came from the reflection of uh, headlights from automobiles. And so nobody ever saw the face. They only would describe these huge, giant red eyes. They almost look like those reflectors that you have at the end of a driveway, you know, the big red reflectors. So uh, nobody really says they or can describe what the Mothman's face looks like. They only can describe the giant red eyes. And uh, has the Mothman been reported in uh, any other countries, any other regions recently? Um, Well, you know, you get, uh, you know, Alaska had, which is, of course, the United States, but Alaska had reports of giant Thunderbird-like creatures. There's, of course, creatures like the rock in old legends that are like the the giant Thunderbirds. But in general, uh, what we have to be very cautious of is, 
in the Mothman prophecies, there were two uh, fictitious reports of Mothman being seen at Chernobyl and Mothman being seen at Mexico City before the Mexico City earthquake and before Chernobyl, before the meltdown. Both of those reports that were inserted into the Mothman movie were fictional. Uh, They never happened in reality. And so every time I hear about, quote-unquote, Mothman being seen in another culture, every story that I've run down has uh, been been a fake, been a fiction, been a, a novelization of the Mothman prophecy story put into somebody's folklore. And so that's uh, that's what's turned out. And uh, I'm sad to say that, you know, Mothman really seems to be a part of the, you know, the folklore and legend of, of North America and really is not connected to any other country. So are we saying that the Mothman is equal to what you might class as a big bird? Yes, definitely. And so when you start looking in other cultures and you use that label, you you know, uh, is there a big bird report? Yes, we have some very good reports from the Alps, for instance, from old European reports of giant eagles, of giant birds that are way beyond what we know are, uh, you know, realistic from known species. South Africa has had these giant bird reports. Uh, you know, in Asia, you get some of the, uh, the giant bird reports, but them being connected to a banshee and having red glowing eyes and, and being a, a mothman are not truthful. They're not really uh, what's going on there. But you do have the big bird reports from around the world. So what's the difference then between a big bird and a thunderbird, Lauren? A thunderbird is, is merely a, a very specific name given by North American, Native American tribes for their folkloric creature. Uh, Supposedly the word thunderbird comes because, uh, you know, a couple things are going on with the name. A lot of um, Caucasians who hear that word think that the Native Americans are saying that, oh, your big birds are making making the noise that, that is creating the thunder. And so that's the misunderstanding that's come about by Euro-Americans and, you know, Caucasians. But what, what we now know is that the Thunderbird name really comes from the fact that the Native peoples have known that the, the thermals, the thermal waves and the, the thunderstorms are really one of the major ways that these large birds have traveled. And if you look back, we know that the Teratorns, which were a giant condor-like bird during the Pleistocene, during the Ice Age, which was known to the native peoples. And in fact, if you look at the, the La Brea tar pit, you find both these Teratorns, which were these giant birds, their fossil remains found in conjunction with humans. And among the Cherokee, they talk about these Teratorns, these giant birds, that would come down and eat and snatch their their children off of the beaches and off of the different areas. So there's this overlap uh, between the native peoples knowing that the thunderbirds were actually using the thunderstorms to hide their movements and their migration. would happen every spring and every fall of these giant birds going north and south and 
in North America from from the Bald Mountains, from the Rockies, from the Appalachias, from the Ozark Mountains is where you hear these giant bird reports. And the native peoples certainly knew that the interaction between the thunderstorms and how these uh, giant birds were hiding behind the clouds and using some of the the thermal updrafts from the heated plains to uh, really bring these condors along to where they needed to migrate or they needed to hunt some of the game. And uh, how big were the wingspan of some of these creatures? The wingspan, uh, they were reports from uh, 15 feet to 25 feet across. Some of the people up in Alaska who saw some of these creatures, uh, you know, in in the early part of this uh, century, in the in the 21st century, in 2003-2004, were comparing these Thunderbirds that they were seeing to the size of a Cessna plane. They were saying that these were rather giant birds. And so, uh, you know, the, the native peoples on the plains looking up in the sky were seeing these things that look like small aircraft. Also, that's why some of the... Uh, and among the totem pole uh, art that you find in the Pacific Northwest, one of the prominent uh, features on the totem pole are uh, thunderbirds and also the thunderbirds that were taking uh, small whales or that were seen taking, uh, you know, small bison, small, you know, buffalo from the plains. So, you know, the, the, the young of the whales and the young of the bison were often being eaten and taking aloft by these thunderbirds. Just going back to the Mothman here, Lauren, uh, there's a question I think I've left out which I, which I want to get answered. Uh, do you think the Mothman was a force of good or a force of evil? Well, I, I think what's important is to really um, to look at the, the kind of split that happened. I think on a, a zoological basis, on a purely biological basis, there seems to have been a biological creature there, maybe an unknown species of giant owl or giant bird. But then something very special happened in terms of those reports. It's almost as if you had a psychological warfare occur. And uh, not to blame it on John Keel, but the way that John Keel came into this, uh, his investigations with almost a demiological point of view, um, one of the primary witnesses... um, whose name is, um, you know, one of the first witnesses there who who saw that, she would tell me that John Keogh came and would interview her. And this poor woman, she said that by the end of her interview, she was scared to death, and within a few months, she had uh, crucifixes, crosses, put on every wall of her home because she was afraid that the demon, the devil, was going to come into her home because of Mothman. And this poor woman, uh, you know, had a mental break. She had to go into a a mental health hospital to uh, really recover for a while because she had a total, what used to be called a nervous breakdown. And uh, it's just a sad thing to see. And so... I think with the Mothman death curse, with the uh, the kind of the banshee-like effects that have been given to Mothman, some of the reports of the men in black trying to abduct some people, that there's a whole psychological aspect to Mothman that is really does 
have evil incarnate in it. And actually, I'm I'm revising my book, and and I've come up with uh, the title of my new book is going to be Mothman Evil Incarnate, because I really see a whole uh, dark reflection to what Mothman has become. Whereas it may have been an exciting new animal and a, a new species in the 1960s, what Mothman has become is is really uh, almost a reflection of the Dark Knight. You know, the Batman, the Mothman, the the darkest, deepest, evilest parts of of these kinds of reports have come out through the stories of uh, of the Mothman. Something I wasn't expecting, and yet something I've I've certainly not turned away from and have documented to, to have so many people die to have so many people have such bad luck i mean as i um, as i was noticing towards the end of my 400 interviews on radio i would have the worst luck on those you know people were being interrupted they would interrupt me the 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 phone would go dead we'd get electronic interference in some of the interviews I would get off the phone and uh, go up to another room in my home and a, a light bulb would burst and you know above me and it it just I mean I personally I never uh, you know other than absolutely never making any money from the book I never had any bad luck personally having any injuries or anything or uh, I mean I did lose my mother died during this and a stepsister died uh who's much younger than me during all of this, but I personally never uh, was injured, but I, I certainly noticed that all around me, the worst bad luck comes whenever you start talking about the moth. So, uh, you know, I can talk about Bigfoot for hours and I'll be on a four-hour program, never be interrupted. I do a 15-minute or half-an-hour interview about Mothman, and every technical that goes wrong can go wrong. And so... There is something very strange and evil about Mothman, and so I'm very cautious when I get around that whole uh, whole subject. And uh, what subject matter regarding cryptozoology do you find the most perplexing? I think that's a hard question. I, I think one of my favorite cases is, of course, the Dover Demon that happened in 1977 of this little orange creature that seemed to pop in to Dover, Massachusetts, uh, over a two-day spell and just was seen by four different witnesses and popped out. I mean, it was a little golem-like creature that uh, really is not connected to anything else known in cryptozoology or even in the UFO field. And yet uh, what I started noticing is in Dover, Arkansas, they had Black Panther reports that year. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, there were Dover kind of connections as far as a, a strange name game that started popping up all over the world in 1977. Those kinds of, they, they bring a smile to my face, and I don't know if they're connected to cryptozoology or just paranormal, anomalous, Fortean phenomena, but they certainly uh, uh, get my attention, let me say that. And uh, does the field of cryptozoology expand? I mean, are you always finding new animals? Well, well, I'm always uh, always interested in new new animals, and new animals are being discovered around the world. Uh, there's a, you know, it seems like, uh, for instance, last year there were lots more reports of, of mystery cats 
than I'd seen, seen in quite a few years. So that certainly uh, uh, gets me scratching my head. Uh, we're going to get more reports in that area. So yeah. I, I just try to be conscious on many different levels. And do you think in your lifetime, Lauren, that you'll ever see a Bigfoot? Well, I, I, I certainly think that within the next 25 years, and I'm always hopeful that I can live into my 90s, so within the next 25 years that we're going to have a large new ape discovered in Asia. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, as opposed to Bigfoot really happening right away, I'm really much more hopeful of a new animal that's like a Bigfoot, like a little ape-like creature being discovered in Sumatra, in Indonesia, in Asia. And so that's where I, I really have a lot more hope. Uh, and uh, I, I think that uh, we're getting lots of indications out of Sumatra that the Orange Pindek, uh, will be discovered, and I think that will shake up the field just as much as if a Yeti or a, a Yaren or a, a Bigfoot is discovered, and so that's what I'm hoping for first. Okay, Lauren, well, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope you can join us back in the future. Okay, that'd be great. To find out more on Lauren Coleman, go to laurencoleman.com or visit my site, themoreshow.co.uk, and look up Lauren Coleman under past guests. Well, until next time, be safe.